that I'm going to be able to get. It gets me a little too riled up, I think. I don't know. Yesterday was an incredible radio show. I know I keep saying that. I hope it doesn't sound like a broken record, but the message was powerful. The impact was profound. The feedback that I got, absolutely amazing. I'm very proud of what we were able to do there. Bring it, to to bring the case, to bring the energy, to bring the attention, to shine a light on the truth. We really did in a big way, in a positive way, in a constructive way, I think, is focusing on the issue at hand and what are we really talking about and and trying to bring the truth to light of some of these people involved that haven't been treated so well by our media, by our public, by others. It's not good. It's not a good situation when good people are being beat down like that. It's not a good situation when good people who are stepping up to speak on behalf of the, for the benefit of others to their own detriment, that we don't take them seriously. We don't even give them a voice, let alone treat them with dignity and respect that they deserve. This subject, war is a racket, which kind of started the story going yesterday. If you recall, it was a speech and later turned into a book. War is a Racket by a Marine General Smedley Butler. Catchy little phrase, don't you think? War is a Racket. Boy, does that ring true, right? How do you argue with it? It's one of those things that you really can't argue with. There's just no rebuttal to it. No, war is not a racket. Uh, Yeah, it really is. (laughs) I say that it's a complete failure of humanity. Why do we have wars at all? Maybe Smedley Butler was trying to make the same argument. I don't know. In some degree, he was. I don't think they said he was a. Did they call him a pacifist? Maybe they did. Peace activist. That's what it was. And there's a difference between peace activist and pacifist. Pacifist. Getting my ists mixed up there, like a little tongue twister. He was not a pacifist. He was a peace activist. <laughs> Why am I spending so much time on this? Well, there's a big difference. Because the pacifist, if you strike them, will not strike back. Won't take any action back. They don't believe in it. To me, that's like uh, a psychological area I really can't get into. I can't really reason with that. But I do respect it. I will say that. I do respect pacifists. Pacifists. But that was not Smedley Butler. He was a peace activist. Now, a peace activist is not somebody who will, you know, if you if you attack them, is just going to walk away. Peace activist is necessarily going to try and say, how do we come to a peaceful resolution to this? Big difference, I think. I, I would like to consider myself a peace activist. I don't know to what degree. Not like I'm out marching in the streets kind of thing, but... I promote peace as much as anybody. You never hear me beating the drums of war. Never once in my life, not one single conflict that I think it was a good idea, with the rare exception of maybe the uh, Iran hostage crisis. 
where I felt that uh, President Carter, I was just a kid at the time, what opinion that I really have of that. I didn't even really under, fully understand what was going on. But as I got older, I became more educated on it, and I still hold true to it. I think he should have done more. And that's where I say I'm not a pacifist. I've been very open about that. People in the media today say, you know, dial it back a little bit. <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. We can be respectful. It doesn't mean we're not going to be aggressive about what we believe in, that's for sure. Either way, I would say to you, Smedley Butler seemed like a decent guy, did he not? A strange character to be a Marine general, in my opinion. We have uh, some Quaker meeting houses around here. Smedley Butler was from Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm here in Fort Washington outside of Philadelphia. We broadcast from Ballakinwood, all within, say, I don't know, and look on the map, probably maybe about a 20-mile radius. I actually grew up out in rural, rural, rural Chester County for a good part of my life. And Smedley Butler was a good bit older than me, so not likely we crossed paths, but we may have done some hunting, hiking, fishing in some of the same places. Who knows? Possible. But uh, I can kind of get a sense of what Smedley Butler was about, how he grew up, what kind of lifestyle he had. And I think it's an interesting candidate to be a United States Marine. But um, as much as I, I've learned about the whole thing and Smedley Butler through all this, which is a much deeper understanding than I, I had previous to talking about it on the show, you know, there was research that I did to be able to talk about it naturally. But Smedley Butler reminds me a lot of Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller that we talked about yesterday, who's got, gotten himself in trouble by coming out with videos. It's an unbelievable story. A guy with 17 years of active duty service, three years away from retirement, He's a lieutenant colonel. It's a nice retirement pension, my friends, that he just gave up because he wasn't going to stand by and, and say nothing while his, he saw his fellow Marines suffer. I really respect that. And him and Smedley Butler both shared a, a common bond in that regard. But we already talked about war as a racket, and I, um, I gave you my synopsis of all that. But there was one thing I missed that I did want to bring to the conversation about all this. Now, he had, I'd say, two big ideas that really were this whole hour-long speech, and it's partly why I didn't want to. I thought about reading it on the radio show or on the podcast, either one, and I, I suppose we could do that. Maybe I will look at that. There's a chance there may be coming a third episode of this. We'll see. I'm going to pull that back out. Maybe we will. Maybe I'll do it in my own way. You know I'm allowed to do that? <laughs> yes, indeed. I'll just tell you a quick story about this. Uh, one of the books that I wrote, if you don't know already, is Common Sense in Modern English. I took Common Sense by Thomas Paine. It was written in Old English, which there's a few people that enjoy reading it like that. I think these are the people that grew up with the King, reading the King James Bible. God bless you. I can't read it like that. I started to read Common, Tom, Common Sense by Thomas Paine. Some parts are easy to read, but some are painfully difficult. There's words that we don't use anymore. I didn't know the meaning of those. I think people are reading it. They, they're assuming they know what they mean. And you really can, by the way. You can follow along that book and the meaning of it and still not understand necessarily every word. It really is written in a common sense argument that it was meant to be. Anyway, I take a flack for this occasion. I say, oh, you know, you, so you stole, you stole his book. No, I translated it. You know, not really much different than translating it from, you know, English to Spanish or something like that, in my opinion. So it's a translation. And as I looked through War as a Racket, the reason I bring all this up 
it's a, it's hard to choke down, I think. I'm going to go reevaluate. Like I said, if I can share it here and I think it's worthy of putting out for you, I will. But the other option is that I can take it and make it my own and you know put the message on. Now, I'm going to tell you just real quick. I don't mean to get tied up with this. But just to tell you how I think, it's very important to me that I respect these authors, these creators, in preserving the original meaning. Uh, and I very much did that with Common Sense by Thomas Paine. There's a whole Kirkus review on it you can check out. I believe that's uh, pasted in with the, the book listings there. But uh, Kirkus did a review on it, and they, were, they weren't easy on me, I can tell you that. They were critical. You can check it out. But I still take it as a positive review all, all together, and the reviews have been awesome. So we'll see if I can bring you uh, War is a Racket. All that to say, I'll see if I can bring you War is a Racket in some format that is enjoyable to consume. But let me give you the two points that he mentioned, because this is what's big. He basically said, look, all the money, the cost of the war should be paid up before there's a single person drafted. And, um, you know, that's an interesting concept. I wanted to mention this. Uh, I found a podcast called Firewatch, which is put out by Military.com. And uh, I'll probably be talking about that, the uh, author of that um of the article speaking about the benefits, but the also the podcast, the podcast rather, speaking about benefits being denied for 30 years and the problems with it. And I've talked about this myself, these gaps in these, in these benefits are really important that we, that we fill it. The, the military benefits are great. Um, I've benefited greatly. Our family's benefited greatly, and we're very grateful for that. But I also know people that have suffered greatly because they can't get what they desperately need. Anyway, um, I just mentioned that as kind of a side note, that when, when Smedley Butler is talking about paying up before the draft, you know, I, as veterans, we often talk about, you know, all the, all the war funding goes, and then, you know, 20 years later when guys are getting sick, they can't walk, they can't work, they can't do this, they can't do that, their lives become a broken mess, and there's no money. It's not fair. All that to say, I don't know if I agree with Smedley Butler about paying everything in advance of the war. That would become a bit of a problem. But there needs to be more done to properly fund the back end. I totally agree. As an interesting side note, uh, too, I want to mention this. The Firewatch podcast I found to be really well done. And you won't hear me say that about other podcasts a whole lot or radio shows. And it's not because I'm arrogant or or anything like that. Um, I guess some people would translate it that way. You can call it what you want. But the bottom line is I put an awful lot of effort into the quality of the delivery as well as the content that we're putting out. I take it very seriously and the integrity of it even more seriously. And I simply don't find that other shows take that as seriously. I've seen many gifted people go out and it's easy now to get a microphone and throw up a podcast. I mean, you could jump into it for about 100 bucks these days. No training, no nothing, just... Turn on a microphone and get up there and ba da ba and you've got a podcast. But it doesn't mean it's a good one. And uh, anyway, uh, there's a lot of people doing that, sadly. And it's it's kind of saturated the, the market, so to speak, with a ton of junk. When you find good stuff, you want to hold on to it. I'm telling you, the Firewatch podcast was a good one. It was a good one. I only listened to one episode. But there's an interesting part about that. The Army veteran who's producing all that content and the podcast, I think to myself, why is he doing it for military.com? Likely getting paid, I would imagine, right? But uh, an interesting arrangement that he doesn't do it on his own, I guess is my point about that. Anyway, war is a racket. 
Smedley Butler's idea was to have all the costs paid up before any draft was made. Um, and I think that, you know, you listen to the Firewatch podcast and these stories of benefits being denied for 30 years. And I, I forget what show I talked about it on, uh, but we talked about this this very issue of the games that are uh, – it was my, my brother uh, Mike was on uh, as a guest on the uh, second or third podcast. And uh, he talked about this very issue, these benefits being denied. Even still, I was in the oil well fires. You, here's a, a great example of this. We spent weeks, you heard me talk about this, in the oil well fires, choking on this smoke. You go on the VA website, I have photographs to prove it, that we were there, number one. Number two, you go on the VA website, it acknowledges the exposure, but says there's no known health effects. Let me ask you this as just a simple comparison. Let's just say that there was belching smoke like this coming out of a refinery somewhere. Well, that wouldn't be allowed for environmental reasons. But just for illustrative purposes, let's say that it was allowed for environmental purposes. Would OSHA require any special protection of the people working there, do you think? (laughs) No known health effects. If I have my eyes closed, you can't see me kind of thing. So Smedley Butler was definitely on to something when he said pay up before the draft because we get screwed on the background and that's the bottom line. All right, we're saying the same thing. All right, that was point number one. I talked about way too long. Point number two from Wars of Racket is that, and I think it was the biggest point really, is that he said that there should be no profit making from war. And I did not have time to get into this on the radio show yesterday and it's the big thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Kind of the big thing, I guess. Should there be profits from war? Now, he is talking about socialism there. Essentially, when you're taking the profit out, as I read that, you have government taking control of the industry. And I say this too. How are you really going to make sure that the profit's taken out? Let's take nonprofit agencies. Well-known, well-established agencies come under criticism. Nationally recognized, internationally recognized, you know, nonprofit organizations where the head of the organization is making a million dollar a year salary. And you say no. And they happen to, in some cases, be the founder of the organization. And that's not profit taking? No. And they can have a car and they can have all these benefits and all this stuff can be done off book. And if you don't think that it's not corrupted beyond belief, then you really need to look a little further. I would say to you in this present time, frequently these nonprofits uh, are um, more corrupt than not. And by the way, just by way of open disclosure, disclosure, since we're talking about it, projectchaos.org is not nonprofit. And for those of you that are supporting the show, which I appreciate deeply, we need it, those are not tax-deductible donations, just so you're aware. Um, And there's a whole reason why I'm not going to do that. I'm just not. It would be a scam to do that, I believe. I really do. We'll pay the taxes is what I'm saying. We'll just pay the taxes. Everybody wants to try and get out of the taxes. I say, you know what, we'll proudly pay the taxes. We will. 
I didn't say happily, but proudly. <laughs> no profits from war. Is that an interesting idea or not? I don't know how you possibly keep it an even playing field. It's a great idea until one side cheats, right? I mean, look at what happened with college and, and Olympic sports. Right? And back in the day when I was growing up, that stuff was free from the influence of money. And it was genuine. Suddenly money gets involved and the whole thing has changed. Some people think it's better. I don't know. But not anymore. It's all influenced by money. And the winning team usually goes to the highest bidder. Now, these are just the facts of life, my friend. Now, it seems kind of unfair in the context of sports, doesn't it? But in the context of war, <laughs> I'm not so sure. It's not always just going to go to the highest bidder in the context of war. I'll tell you that. And in, 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 on the battlefield, that's where the, the idea of sheer tenacity comes into play. But we'll, we'll just stick to the point here for a second. But what's happened in the process of this winning team going to the highest bidder? Well, it's destroyed the integrity of sports to the point that we're now arguing over which bathrooms to use. It's absolutely insane. And you could say the same thing about politics. You know, the, the elections largely seem to be purchased at this point. Canada, and this is this is not conspiracy. I'm not going down some election rabbit hole. It's just a simple fact. If, if you ever want to go run for office, which I I've, did initiate that process at one point, the first and only question that you're going to be asked as a candidate is, how much money have you raised? It's all that anybody cares about. Wealthy people stepping into an election, they don't have to answer that question. Self-funding. Look at the result. Look at the result of that. Look at the loss of integrity and look at now the, the fighting and the, the loss of unity in the country. So if we use the, the same logic, if we were to eliminate war profits, would that eliminate war? Hmm. That's a whole other question altogether, isn't it? Maybe. Maybe it would. Lockheed Martin, all these big companies. And if you don't know, I don't have it in front of me. I will be getting it. There are basically three finance companies, is my understanding, and three giant defense contracting companies. And it's my understanding that it's those six CEOs that are essentially pulling the puppet strings in this country. I don't completely believe that, by the way, at all. But I will say this. As there's been a movement to expose and in some cases vilify these mega corporations, and I think there's real issues there that we need to talk about, we've got to follow the money. Where's the money going and why? Why are we spending all this money? I'm hoping to use my veteran status as a way to access those circles, maybe have them on the show to have a discussion with them, a proper discussion, a uh, respectful discussion, even if we don't agree. And maybe we will. I don't know. But if we look at how much the profits in war and this centralization of these companies influencing all this, look how much effort there's put into all that, this war effort, right? People buy into it, at least to some degree. All this money here around the world, our spending is through the roof. Why? Well, it's all built on a lack of trust. If we had trust with all these uh, other nations, we wouldn't need all this war machine. So there's another idea. What have we invested in, in building trust instead of a war-making machine? I'll just be upfront with you. I don't 
think that it would be a good idea to take the profits out of war. And you got to consider something. It's not just bullets and, and, and armor and weapons. The, the military spending, it's bandages, it's ships, it's vehicles, it's daycare centers on bases, it's recreational centers, basketballs for the youth teams, schools, teachers. The military, our military, is a whole economy of its own at this point. You want to talk about taking the profit out of it? We're about a million years away from that. Do you know that our military spending in this country, if it were a country, would be the 20th largest economy in the world? Just our military spending. That's a whole subject in itself. The amount of money that we're putting into that. The amount of effort that we're putting into that. And what's the saying? You reap what you sow. You're going to put all that money and effort into war. You know, I'm going to probably make a little war in the process, I would imagine. But keeping that out of the debate for a second, back to the point of not to take out profits, I think that the important thing to push for would be fairness and transparency. But even that is brutally difficult. I spent four years military. I didn't get into any advanced purchasing during that, but I get to understand how the the military purchasing system works, that we were able to procure things, right? And uh, we, what do we procure? Uh, vehicle parts, tools, small stuff like that. And there was a whole system to do that. Then I spent 14 years working in government, and I did have, among other things, dealing with the letting of multi-million dollar municipal contracts and the whole legal process of going through that. And I know the the bidding laws, at least in Pennsylvania, very well. I'm not an expert on it, but I know it very well. And I understand completely the games that are played. The net result of it is that government pays three to four times more for the contracts. Now, that doesn't go for everything. Some The government gets incredible deals on certain things like vehicles, for example. Some of those contracts are very competitive and, and very beneficial to the government. How does that all blend out? I don't know, but my only point is this, that even with all of the laws currently in place, they're supposed to generate fairness and transparency. Uh, it's not really very effective. In fact, it's really kind of producing the opposite of the intended effect. And I don't even really have a solution to bring to that, but I want to keep going. It's not really my point of bringing it up. I guess the only point I'm trying to say to you is, you know, th- this issue of money in war is, is is pretty tricky, really, when you get into it. If you don't have the incentive of profits, right? If if I'm fighting, if I'm a general fighting a war, and I say I need a, a gun that can do this or a this that can do that, or armor that can protect my tanks. Here's a good one, right? You you're you're fighting a war or you're an American defense contractor and you see what's happening to Israeli tanks, or maybe you're um, in North Korea and you see what's happening to Russian tanks, and you say, let me see if I could invent a solution to that. Well, you're going to want to get paid for that, right? And that military might be, might be willing to pay you handsomely for that, for that benefit. If you take that incentive out, how are you ever going to get that result? I don't know. Somebody would have to answer that question. But I want to switch gears here a second. And that is a whole nother level of this. And that is the involvement of the generals. And how political 
should the generals be? There was a little debate earlier this year raised on military retirement pay where generals make more in retirement they do on active duty. A retired general, I can't imagine this is all the same since you have different levels of general, of course, but the retirement salary, $230,000 a year. $230,000 a year, I really don't know the full package, but I believe they get base housing forever. I'm not positive about that. Uh, they get medical for life and their family. Many other perks as well. It's a pretty nice um, retirement package. But despite that, this is not what retired officers, particularly with security clearances, are doing. I had a um, great conversation uh, with Senator Doug Mastriano about this. And did I have this in my notes here? Good. I'm going to make sure I didn't have it to bring up later. Senator Doug Mastriano, Army veteran, ran for governor of Pennsylvania. I had a conversation with him about this very subject. In fact, I'm hoping to have him on at some point to discuss it more fully. He said he got out of the Army and he was walked away from a lucrative contract working in the defense industry because he's a retired colonel, I believe, with a security clearance. So all these guys are getting out. There's so much money. It's unreal. Get down into Virginia and Washington there, and there's a lot of money being made off of the defense industry. I'm not trying to vilify it, but it's a problem when it becomes politicized and is not really supporting the needs of the taxpayer and not really supporting the rank and file properly. Then I I saw this story about my beloved General uh, Mattis and uh, Mad Dog Mattis. And he's been advising Yemen for about a year. I read his book, Call Sign Chaos, is incredible, by the way. And I don't, I don't worship anybody. You know me by now if you've been listening. I'm not a bootlicker. But I like Mattis. I don't agree with him on everything. I don't agree with him on some big things, by the way. I'd love to have him on the podcast but <clears throat> or on the radio show. But uh, I would be shocked that somebody like him would accept that invitation for a lot of reasons. I'm going to hit him right in the solar plexus. And he's going to fight back. That guy's not going to take it lying down. You would probably see a real dogfight. But I don't think he would take me up on it. I really don't. I'd be shocked. But we'll see. We'll try. But then I hear this story. But I, I like the guy. Is what I'm saying to you. I respect him. I like him. And I hear this. He's been advising Yemen for a year. I read his book, Call Sign Chaos. I'm pretty sure in the book he talks about meeting with a guy in Yemen. He had to have a, a, his, a, a carbine on his lap because he thought this guy was going to kill him in this meeting. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't Yemen. Maybe it was somewhere else. But anyway, advising Yemen, it was not made public. There's no obligation to do so. Why would he? He got paid. Our One of our generals who served as a secretary of defense is advising Yemen and getting paid to do it. And by the way, this got cleared by the state, but the state department on all this, it's a little crazy to me. Not just generals, like I said. Lucrative contract work. And it's not just officers, it's not just security clearances. You know, you get guys that get out as a corporal or a sergeant. What are they making these days? 30000 a year, 40000 a year? They'll get out, go work for a defense contractor. I feel like some of this is dried up, but I don't know. But the lucrative work, go overseas, you know, for, for you know, months at a time or whatever, and, you know, make 
120, 150, 200 grand a year in some cases. Huge money. This is like the Russian Wagner Group stuff. Is it right? Listen, I'm only bringing it up from this perspective. Is this money having an influence on the politics and is those poli- are those politics having an impact on what's going on in our military today and what is that impact? Follow the money. That's all I'm saying. And we should know. It's, t- it's supposed to be completely transparent. It's not a matter of national security. It is not. We had a detailed conversation about Force Design 2030. I was shocked to hear the response to what I, I mean, this is not something that I would, you know, normally bring up at a, at a party uh, at our house or something like that. Hey, guys, have you heard about Force Design 2030? But I was very excited that I was able to bring the conversation in a way that it did ignite uh, some interest in others. And I was happy to express my displeasure with it. And I was also pleased to provide the evidence from the Naval Institute saying the same thing as me and others. And here's the basic problem in all this. Because I'm not a political guy. Let's just look at the stark reality. The problem is the way that they took away tanks and artillery with no replacement. They just took it away from the Marine Corps. And then, then they, they're going to have the audacity. Say, Stop complaining and figure out a solution. Now, this the whole story gets better. They take away the Marine Corps' tanks and artillery and say, well, you're going to just fight with your rifles and drones and stuff like that. Okay. This is an article. This is the article. I just jogged my memory. Forgive me. Do I have the author's name here? I was a little sloppy with this. I should have set this up a little bit better. This Military.com article was written by the uh, host of the Firewatch podcast. Great, great writer. Former CNN writer, by the way. Army veteran, former CNN writer. And this is the the story that caught my eye that connected me with the podcast. A Marine Corps general, I think uh, the commander of uh, IMF, um, publicly complaining that the Marine Corps doesn't have ships. Doesn't have enough ships. If you listen to what I said yesterday, what did I say? They're going to transform the military against uh, under you know against advisement. They're going to transform it into a, a only in support of naval amphibious operations. Well, that's wrong too. They're killing the Marine Corps. Why? And part of it is taking away the resources. I'm going to t- you know tie your hands behind your back, and part of it is destroying morale, like the botched. Kabul deal and forcing Marines to clean up feces in Afghanistan. Why was that all done? Almost like punishment. Worse, Marines like Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, they speak out about this stuff and they lose their careers and they get their lives destroyed. I want to tell you something here before we get into the closing chapter of this podcast, and that is this. I have a crazy update coming on this issue of ships with the Marine Corps that will be coming up, I guess, on the, uh, where are we here? Yeah, uh, it'll be on the next radio show. So you got a program, just making sure. I have so many balls in the air right now. I just want to make sure I give you the correct information. On the Monday, the next live radio show, I have an important update on this issue of the ships in the Marine Corps, and it is profound. 
It is crazy when you hear and, and listen. You may care about ships in the Marine Corps. You know, nobody's waking up in the morning going, "Oh my goodness, the Marine Corps doesn't have enough ships." I understand, but when you hear the ingenuity and the solution to this coming and where it's coming from. And the history on it, it is going to blow your mind. All that to say that you want to come back and stay tuned. This story does not end. I want to tell you this to close this out. That we are in a time that is clouded with conflict and uncertainty. And because of that, we would do well to listen to the wisdom of people like Smedley Butler, a revered Marine who shocked the nation when he daringly spoke out against the war in his speech It was later immortalized in a book, War is a Racket. A peace activist with a Quaker background, Butler served in wars across the Philippines and and Haiti. But when he saw the banana wars in Central America and the Caribbean as mere tools for corporate greed and corruption, he believed that war was a game of wealth and power that created vast disparities at the cost of ordinary people. And he offered a radical solution to dismantle the war machinery, limit income during wartime, and maintain a military strictly for defense. In his words, they were tough. Tough to hear for some, but it was a plea for peace, for rationality, and sanity. Those words echo through the corridors of time, and they remain relevant today. At least, let's use that to motivate us to work for at least the minimum of transparency. When we fast forward to today, we've got this controversy over Force Design 2030. It's not just the Marine Corps. It's affecting all the other branches. I just happen to be better plugged into what's going on with the Marine Corps. But as the military strategy is evolving, which is normal, what's not normal is this wave of dissent that's stirring among veterans and senior military officers. It's a discontent that's creating a silent coup of sorts, all in response to this Marine Corps' Force Design 2030 plan. Concerns over the removal of tanks, reduction in infantry, and the reliance on the Army have sparked a real debate on all this. And the establishment's dissenting voice is a smokescreen, really, concealing their own cowardice their own lack of leadership. But then when we look at Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, a distinguished Marine who risked everything he had to publicly criticize the the flawed withdrawal from Afghanistan, a call for accountability was unprecedented, unprecedented, and the failures that he pointed out reflecting his unwavering dedication to his Marines and his country, and his actions, a beacon of truth and courage, echo the spirit of a true warrior, a real contrast to those who choose obedience over loyalty. His story is a real reminder of the power of truth and courage. In times of adversity, when the stakes are high, it's stories like people like General Smedley Butler and Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller that shine. They did not remain silent. They chose to question. They chose to demand accountability, not for their personal gain, but for the benefit of all. And they remind us that silence in the face of wrongdoing is complicity. And that the true measure of a leader, a warrior, a citizen is not in their victories, but at their stand during moral crisis. 
and let their stories inspire us to lead with conviction, to challenge the norm, to work for truth and what's right. I'm Chris Kunkel. This is Project Chaos. Thanks for listening. Make it a great day.